0: Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. In our last text, at the end of chapter 3, Paul summarizes the mystery of godliness and puts it all at the the completed work of Jesus Christ. And immediately after that, he contrasts it in our text this morning with apostasy or what the NASB our translation this morning the way it puts it is falling away from the faith now how this happens is so simple that it's shocking and oddly it comes with very holy sounding commitments Those who apostatize regularly making an appeal to great godliness. And so Paul is giving us a warning that we are to avoid certain things, avoid certain people so that we may not apostatize, not fall away from the faith. That's what we'll be spending our time on this morning, that we would know what the dangers are and that we would know how to avoid them. And kids, if you pay attention to this reading, you'll find out why we pray before we eat. Have you ever wondered that? Why do we pray before we eat? You'll find out if you listen. Now, please stand and hear the reading of God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. But the spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage And advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So the first thing that we have to say is that apostasy is real. Apostasy is real. It is not a theoretical danger, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. And so if it's not a theoretical danger, then it's a real danger. Some will do this. And indeed, many, many have in the intervening centuries. Some will fall away from the faith. Apostasy is real. Now, I think that that needs to be emphasized, especially uh, today in America, whether you're in a Reformed church or just in a random, broadly evangelical church, because... We have, uh, we've grabbed onto that doctrine of the uh, once-saved-always-saved concept. And that, ironically, is something that you find regardless of whether you're in a Reformed church or not. And the reason is because it's a beautiful-sounding idea that once you're saved, you're always saved, right? And and so then it translates into, once you're saved, you have nothing to worry about. Once you're saved, you have no reason to bother hearing this text. That's really what it comes down to, is that there's all kinds of warnings, all kinds of uh, discourages, and discussions in the Word of God about the dangers of those who are in the church, those who are in the faith. And it's just uncomfortable. It's hard, it's not fun to have to deal with those, to have to think about ourselves. And so, yes, saints persevere, which is different than saying once saved, always saved. The the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints says that if you have been justified by God, our Heavenly Father, then He will bring that work to completion. Right? He will bring that work to completion in you. He will sanctify you also. He will glorify you also. And yet, here in this passage... We have a description of those who fall away from the faith. And so that necessitates that those who apostatize are in the faith. In some sense, they are a part of the church. Right? And not just a part of the church, but uh, claiming themselves to be a part of the church, to be in the faith. This is not something that simply other people on the outside are labeling them as, which of course there are many, many people who are willing to label anybody as a Christian, right? In the faith, in the faith, in the faith, just walk down the mall, in the faith, in the faith, in the faith. There's no shortage of people who are willing to, to cast that label onto everybody they meet, Right? well, they must be a Christian. They live in America. But here we're talking about people who claim that name for themselves. Here we're talking about people who are in the church. And this is why it is such a danger to to closely associate the invisible church and the visible church. To not be able to make a distinction between the bride of Christ, the spiritual bride which is made up of all of the saints, those who will persevere, right? And on the other hand, the visible church, which is the people that we see when we look around, when we go into any church that claims to worship the one true God, right? So if we don't see, if we're unable to distinguish between that then we're unable to see that there are some who are in the faith and yet are not what saints will not persevere but will instead apostasize right the moment that we the moment that we say if you're in the church you are you are saved, the moment that we say that if you're in the church, you are a saint in that sense, then we run into the issue that we cannot, we cannot read this text anymore and have it make sense. We cannot read this text and have it be a warning to us. We cannot read this text and really uh, have it cause fear in us, which is it is intended to do. It is intended to contrast true worship and false worship. It's intended to contrast true believers and false believers, saints and hypocrites. Another place that we see this warning given is in the parable of the sower. And you read about the different seeds that land in different places, right? And some of the seeds grow, but are choked out by the weeds and thorns. And so this is another example of the same kind of thing, that you have this you have this growing, you have this person who is in the faith in some sense, right? A part of the body, the visible church, and yet will not persevere, but rather <clears throat> will fall away from the faith. Now, how does that happen? Well, deceit is central. Deceit. And kids, deceit means lying. Deceitful spirits, hypocrisy, doctrines of demons... Satan was a liar from the beginning. And when you think back to the Garden of Eden, you think about him lying to Eve to convince her to eat the fruit. And you see that he was deceitful. He was teaching her the doctrines of the devil which are that there's some way for us to get good apart from god that there's that there's a better way than following after god and that's this that's the essential doctrine of the demons Everything really that that is the hypocrisy, the the deceit, the lies boils down to that one thing: that there's a way apart from the way that God has laid out for us to be saved. That there's something that there's something better than being saved. That there's there, there's just a better way. There's 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 a better God. There's a better there's a better way to God. There's a better. Something besides what God has commanded, something besides faithful obedience, right? And how does this come? Well, it comes via people generally, right? People do the teaching. And this is why we're commanded in 1 john four one beloved do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God which in if if you just stop there and you read that and it's on its own, you might be very confused like okay what do we have to become uh ghostbusters you know like we have to like interact with these spirits somehow and evaluate them and see whether they're good ones or bad ones. But he continues and he says, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, so what we're seeing is the the connection between spirits and people. That some people are displaying, some people are declaring true Doctrine, and some people are declaring and, and and teaching false doctrine, and insofar as they are teaching false doctrine, they are teaching the doctrines of demons, of of evil spirits. And we are required to discern, which means we are required to discern the teaching of men who claim to be teaching what God has said. You follow? Because that's the only way you can can discern the spirits. Judge between the spirits is judging between conflicting teachings. Now that work is very, very hard. Okay? Because what it requires you to do is it requires you to be able to see deceit for what it truly is. And the whole point of deceit is that it is deceitful. It's tricky. It, it tricks you. That's the point of it. Right? When Satan was in the garden, he, he used, he used what you, you may think. Well, that's, that's obvious. Well, in hindsight, it is obvious what he does. Has God really said you can't eat any of the fruit in the garden? What is that? That's planting a seed of doubt. he's, He's being deceitful even in what? Even in what he misunderstands. He knows that that wasn't God's command, that they can't eat from the... Was Satan confused when he asked that question? Of course Satan wasn't confused when he asked that question. He's being deceitful, right? And so today... One of the best ways to deceive people is to ask confused questions. Isn't it? Haven't you heard confu- questions asked that you don't have any idea how to answer but they just make you mad? Because you know that there's something just, just disgusting and nasty and bad about the question. Right? Now, okay, so you can see this in in uh, I can dem- I can give you an example of a bad question that's that's less spiritual, where um, you know the dad asks his his three year old daughter, "Who do you like better, mommy or daddy?" Right? And the wise three year old daughter says, "That's a bad question." That was my older sister. <laughs> I'm not actually sure how old she was, but that's a bad question. Why? Well, because the question itself is leading towards falsehood, right? The question itself implies that there is some division between mommy and daddy that can be made, when in fact, they have become one, and so it's It's a misleading question in what it's driving. It places before you a false dilemma. It pushes you to make one false decision or another false decision, right? You can see all that with this, with the simple, with this, in hindsight, the questions that, and and the statements that Satan makes to Eve, oh, I can't believe she fell for that, right? But isn't this deceit? And so, if we are going to avoid apostasy, we must be able to distinguish between truth and falsehood. We must be able to discern the spirits. We must be able to see deceit and name it. You understand? And not just deceit, but deceitful people. And not just deceitful people, but say that is deceitful, that that person is teaching, and that is a doctrine straight from hell. It is the doctrine of a demon that's being taught. Now, Paul goes on and he gives a couple of examples, right? Right? And his examples are perfectly apropos today still, and have been for the whole intervening 2,000 years since he wrote it. And the two examples are what? Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those I lost my spot. By those who believe and know the truth. Now, we're going to come back to those two examples, but I just want to stop before we even get into them and say, the first thing that you have to realize is these are actually a danger to us. They haven't gone out of style, number one. And number two, they are also only examples. There are many doctrines of demons, right? And many men who are seeking to lead people astray from the true faith. Out of the true faith. And they will not do it, generally speaking, by uh, a, an outside-of-the-church attack. They're not going to just say, I can't believe you believe that religion crap. You, you understand. There are people who say that. They are, they are seeking to lead you astray. But in this case, let's go back and look a little bit closer before we get into those examples. Where do these doctrines of demons Come from, where do, they, where do they come out? Well, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now, I already said, you know, this comes through people, number one. Number two, the, the second thing that we have to see is that it's not just that they are declaring lies, but they are liars. And so they will. They will be hypocrites. They will lie about what they are attempting to accomplish. They will lie about their goal for you. Remember Satan with Eve. Well, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll become like him. He presents this good goal, good-sounding goal, right? And this is the same thing. That happens today. You have people who they are liars. They are declaring lies. They are hypocrites. Their conscience is seared. And, and you don't have hypocrisy with the person who says, I reject religion. I declare there is no God. I hate God. I'm going to do whatever I want. And so sue me. You know, that's not hypocrisy that 's not what Paul is warning against here. there is a certain sort of lie that that's being told with that it's the lie that there is no God, the lie that uh, God that, that there's nothing to fear right but it's really not hypocritical it's just blatant rejection of God, rejection of faith. whereas what Paul is warning against is people who are hypocrites, which is to say he's warning against false prophets, which is to say he's warning against wolves in sheep's clothing, right? That's what hypocrisy looks like. It's somebody who is inside the church, who claims to be holy, who puts on a show of being holy, who makes a good appearance, and yet... There's poison in the words. And yet what they're leading to is not truth, not goodness, not obedience, but rather away from the faith, away from the mystery of godliness that Paul has just gotten done talking about, right? And instead to apostasy. And so this happens through lies, it happens through hypocrisy, it happens through people who claim the name of Christ. And that we have to have fixed in our minds. Because if the moment that somebody says, well, I'm just a Christian, then we roll over and like, oh, well, I don't know what I was so worried about. We are not discerning the Spirit's. We are not avoiding the danger of false shepherds. We are not able to take this warning and learn anything from it. Because the doctrines of demons come through hypocrites. Hypocrites. And not just hypocrites. But hypocrites who are seared in their conscience, and this is important because if they weren't seared in their conscience, they could not, with a straight face, look at you and say the things that they're saying. Does that make sense? It takes, it takes not just hypocrisy, but a seared conscience to say, That they're seeking after God, that they're seeking after holiness when they know full well that the Bible condemns what they are saying. And unless we realize that it comes not just, that this is not just hypocrisy, but it comes out of a seared conscience, again, we will not face the danger the way, we will not recognize the danger as truly dangerous the way we need to. In other words, They need to be able to look at you and lie through their teeth about what their motives are. They need to be able to smile at you. They need to be able to hug you. They need to be able to say that they love you. They need to be able to say that they love God. And all of those things are false. They need to be able to say that they're obedient when they know what they're hiding in the hypocrisy, is what has seared their conscience, right? So how do you sear your conscience? Well, you sear your conscience by giving yourself over and over and over to sin. And you deaden your heart. You deaden your conscience. You begin to sear it so that you're no longer afraid when you commit that sin. So that you can go further into that sin the next time. So that you don't feel the pain of that sin anymore. So that you don't feel the guilt of that sin anymore. In fact, you begin to justify that sin. And, and that's part of what leads people astray. This is part of what the doctrines of demons really are. Ultimately, it has to lead to sinful behavior. There, there are people who will, who will justify any and every sin when their conscience is seared on that sin. In fact, they'll begin to declare it as something good that they've, that they've discovered that everyone who thinks that this is bad is actually misunderstood and that really this is good. Now, what are the sins that you like or, or the sins that you commit, right? Because <laughs> those are the things that you like those are the ones where you're in danger of being led astray by those who already have seared their conscience more than you have and are hypocrites and are lying to you about what their goal is. Do you understand? So so you sin a little bit in this way, and and you like it. And you sin a little bit more, and then you think, well, you know, really, I shouldn't do that. And then you hear somebody talking about, how actually, it's a good thing for you to do that. You're like, tell me more. And what are you doing? You are listening. You are paying attention to the doctrines of demons. You are paying attention to deceitful spirits. This is something that we are in danger of doing because we are sinners and because we like our sin. And so therefore, those who are saying, well, the fruit is good. Look at that. It Doesn't it look lovely to eat? And plus, you know what will happen if you give yourself to it. You'll be like God. And so you'll read people today who, who talk about sexual immorality of all sorts as though it's a good thing and that they're doing away with the shame that came at the eating of the fruit. Right? Because Adam and Eve became ashamed that they were naked. And so today people are declaring that they have a way apart from God's command, apart from holiness, apart from his path to heaven and and into his presence by the blood of Jesus Christ. They're saying that they can do away with the shame of nakedness through some other means. And, And so whether that's Whatever kind of sexual immorality that is, it's always through sexual morality. okay? It, it can be pornographic, it can be through uh, relationships, it can be through behaviors, it can be through any sort of, of immorality, where in the end, you have no more shame over nakedness, and has it accomplished what they say that it's accomplished? Look, the fruit is good. No more shame. We don't want there to be shame anymore in the church about the issue of sexuality, We want there to be openness and freedom and truth. Now, does that sound good? Sounds wonderful, right? And yet the fruit is bad because the way that it's being pursued is not through repentance and holy living and mortification of sin and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, but rather through giving ourselves to the sin such that we're no longer ashamed anymore. Because why? Why? not because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and we have nothing to be ashamed of anymore because he has washed us clean, but because we have seared our consciences. Now that's just one example of one kind of sin that we can do this with, right? There are many other kinds of sins besides sexual immorality, there's gossip, right? And gossip is a spoken sin, right? It comes out of our hearts still, it comes, but, but it's, a, it's a spoken sin. And yet, is there any example of obvious gossip that doesn't include a justification with it? Do you understand what I'm saying? It always comes with a justification that somehow this is actually a good thing. How do I know? Because I've heard it. No. Because I've done it. Right? Well, of course I've heard it too, but understand When we give ourselves to sin, inevitably what we want to do is justify it as a good thing. And so the further that you go into sin, the more you sear your conscience, the more you open yourself up to being deceived by these spirits, because the more you're paying attention to them. Now, we get into the examples. Okay? And the examples that Paul uses are again forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods. Now, what's going on here is that these deceitful spirits that come about through people who are in the church are seeking to convince us that sacrifice is better than obedience. Do you see the sacrifice in this passage? What is the sacrifice? Giving up marriage and giving up certain foods. Right. Now, I want I, I want you to pay attention to the way I put it: that sacrifice is more important than obedience, because. <clears throat> It doesn't mention obedience in, in our passage in regard to, um, in regard to th- this contrast that I'm bringing out. Sacrifice versus obedience. But that is a biblical concept. And it goes all the way back, of course. We, the most famous example is who? Samuel and Saul. And Samuel says, when Saul hasn't obeyed but has kept a bunch of animals alive... For sacrifice, right? He says, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And so I want you to see this relationship between sacrifice and obedience. You have to have that, you have to have that clear in your mind as you read this passage, as you consider what the sacrifices are that, that people will call you to. As an alternative to true obedience to God. Okay? Now, they will also use these as an alternative to faith. Okay? But I want us to always keep true faith and true obedience joined at the hip. Right? Because faith and obedience go together, as the book of James says makes so clear. So if we keep them close together, then we understand that the moment that people begin to levy additional rules on us, there's a few different things going on, but you know that both faith and obedience are under attack. And the one that I don't want us to lose track of today is that obedience is under attack. I know that for the most part, people are clear on the fact that faith is under attack the moment that there's legalism, the moment that there's additional rules being added, okay? But faith and obedience go together, and so obedience is also under attack. How do we know? Well, okay, they say that that, that there's these additional rules that you need to follow. Not getting married, not eating certain foods, right? But these are people who are hypocrites, seared in their own conscience. And so what they're doing is they are using these, not getting married and not eating certain foods, as alternatives that they can keep to the law of God that they can't keep. They replace the commands of God with the commands of men. Why? so that they can make a hypocritical show of keeping the command. You see? Because nobody who's, who's being open and honest about their life can, can say, oh yeah, I keep the law of God. You've got to replace it with something else. And so it comes into these very holy-sounding things like, being above marriage, like being above eating certain foods, or just not being above them, but being somebody who beats your body into submission. Now, are you to beat your body into submission? You are, right? But in submission to what? God's law, right? God's law. And that's why later on in our passage, he's got this section on bodily discipline. Bodily discipline is only of little profit. There's a little bit of benefit there, sure. But godliness is profitable for all things. Verse 8, you see that? And so bodily discipline connects back to this, those people who are so great in their bodily discipline. And we think, of course, about working out. Because why? Well, because we're an image-based, obsessed culture. And we want everybody to look really good. And so we have made working out into the new not eating meat. You see? It's a new command. Have you worked out this week? How many times have you worked out this week? That's the measure of your holiness, you understand, because that's the way that you can make sure that you look good for other people, so that you'll be impressive, so that you'll have sex appeal, so that you'll have the, the, the praise of the world and the praise of God. You see what's going on, right? You see how easy it is to fall into this. So, this kind of bodily discipline that Paul's talking about, abstaining from marriage, you know, how obvious is it that the Roman Catholic Church was for centuries and still today making abstaining from marriage into some holy thing, but it was Hiding the corruption of what they were actually doing. Right? And so it's a big show out of having control over your body while they're molesting people. Is that control over your body? Is that bodily discipline? Of course not. Is that obedience to God? Is it godliness? Not getting married. Is that godliness? No. It's not godliness. There's nothing special about it. Just like not eating meat, there's nothing special about it. If you don't like meat, don't eat it. I don't care one way or another. But don't you dare try to say that you're somehow being super disciplined and and therefore obeying God by keeping your diet. Do you understand? And your diet may be any number of things. Obviously, in this case, they would have been talking about no pork, right? Because we're dealing with the Jewish, we're dealing with the Jewish influence in the church of those who are trying to keep the law as some sort of additional thing. So, certain meats. And, of course, there are people today who make a great religion out of their bodily discipline, their, their, their sacrifice of not consuming meat or not consuming any animal products, right? You've also got a whole group of people who make a huge show out of the necessity of not having any alcohol. You also have a, a big group of people Who say no caffeine? Right? Do you guys know this? You're like, well, it's just the Mormons, right? Yeah, but that's, this is the heart of Mormonism, you guys. This is the heart of the Seventh day Adventists. It is replacing godliness with commands that people can obey and that make them feel spiritual. And this is why it leads into these, this is why the Roman Catholic Church, it led into this perverseness of everybody trying to become monks and nuns because they wanted to be holy, they wanted to be able to get into heaven, they wanted to be righteous. And this is what ended up being understood as righteous even if it was never declared as, this is how you get into heaven. Which, of course, in some ways it was declared, right? And what else did they do? No meat on Fridays. Is this hard to see? Well, you say, well, the no marriage was only for a certain class of people, only for the priests, only for the monks, only for the nuns. And the no meat was only on a certain day, and so there's nothing wrong with it. Right? Wrong. Wrong, because it is what, it's what makes Friday holy. It raises it up to a spiritual level. And so if you want to talk about fasting and the goodness of fasting, more power to you. Fasting is good. Fasting is spiritual. Right? And this is why we cannot be mistaken and confused here in thinking that somehow this is talking this is this contrast is between um, faith and obedience, and this is what we want to make the passage into. This is what so many people are doing today, even in the Reformed church they're making obedience opposed to faith, but in point of fact, what Paul is doing here is he is He is putting obedience in contrast with man-made rules. Do you see how big of a difference that is? Now, forbidding marriage. Where else do you see that besides the Roman Catholic Church? Well, you also see it in this Protestant vision of this special spiritual super-spiritual person who's beyond marriage. And this is coming out into the spiritual friendship movement, which is declaring that somehow there is a way for those who are tempted by same-sex lust to avoid marriage and that it will be some sort of spiritual good for them. They're advocating abstaining from marriage. Do you see? Advocating abstaining from marriage. When in point of fact, God has laid out the path of obedience for fighting against sin, sexual temptation, those who are burning are to marry. And so anybody who advocates for abstaining from marriage is what? deceiving, a deceitful spirit seared in their conscience. Now this, is, this makes us very uncomfortable for me to begin saying that because there's all kinds of people who are good people. Right? Good Christians who are saying these things. Think of Luther at the time of the Reformation taking on the issue of marriage. Right? Everybody in the world, all of the Christians, were in agreement about marriage being a, a, a bad thing or abstaining from marriage being a good thing. Right? And so for him to speak out and to say, no, 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 that's that's the opposite of what the Bible says, that's the doctrine of a demon, is for him to condemn Everybody. In a sense. Or what? Or it is to be a, a, de- a declaration of freedom to, th- to everybody. <laughs> a declaration of the truth that will set them free from the bondage of this particular deception that the devil had worked in the church of God. So that souls would be saved. You see the different ways of looking at it, right? And so you can look at it and you can say, yeah, but everybody thinks this today. And are you really saying that none of them are Christians? And I'll say, no, no more than Luther was saying that there were no Christians in the Roman Catholic Church, right? But has deception crept into the church? Absolutely. And do you want to sit underneath that teaching or do you want to sit under Luther's teaching? you want to be under Luther's teaching, don't you? Because he will actually set you free. And so this is what's at stake when we sit under teachers that are proclaiming falsehoods, that are proclaiming these deceptions. And not just proclaiming them, but who are not protecting you against them. You know, pastors that don't confront the fact that people are worshiping at the altar of the no-sugar God. You follow that, right? I know there are some double negatives and stuff in there. Pastors must confront those who say sugar is bad. Pastors must confront those who say sugar is bad. Because if they don't, then they are leaving open to deception the world, the the whole church, everybody under their care, to those who are saying, what? To abstain from certain foods. That are created by God to be gratefully shared in by those who love him, who have faith, right? Pastors that won't confront the the new rules that are rising up. Always there's new rules rising up as the thing that makes you good, the thing that is spiritual. And now, can I tell you how, how it's spiritual to not eat sugar? Can I make the case of Satan? Of course I can. I can be the devil's advocate, right? What does sugar do to your body? Are you not the temple of the Lord? Are you not to care for your body? What about your wife and your children? Do you not owe to them to take care of your body? And on, and on, and on with guilt tripping, right? about what you can and what you can't do, what you can and what you can't eat. And God says, I made sugar. It is good. It's very good, isn't it? And then he says, now no gluttony. Right? And so what we we always want to do is we always want to say that somehow it's, uh, it's obedience for us to, to raise up man-made commands on the one hand. And on the other hand, when, when we start tearing down those man-made commands, we want to say, well, I guess all of the commands have to go. But there is no comparison between the commands of man and the commands of God. There will always be new ideas new commands about things that you should do or that you shouldn't do from the world and they'll make them into the the, the test of holiness for you you understand and so when when um when people talk about uh fat Americans in the church as proof of the sinfulness of Christianity, or, you know, of Christians, sorry, uh, I have no patience for it. No tolerance, no patience. Not because I don't believe that there's such a thing as gluttony, not because I don't think that there is any sin of gluttony in the church, right? But because what is going on there is the raising up of Something besides God's command as the thing that matters, which is being skinny and looking good. (laughs) You see, what's actually going on is the raising up of this false, this this deceitful spirit that's claiming that what they're leading you into is the righteousness of avoiding gluttony, but when in point of fact what they're leading you into is what? Worshiping the image, the, 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 the form of man. Do you see? It's all about looking good. It's not even about being healthy. But if you want to go into the health issue, then I'll, I'll meet you there too. God made all of the foods to be gratefully shared in, and they are made pure. They're made righteous, and this is why we this is why we go into uh, this is why we go into the uh, the rest of the passage. Right? We don't just stop reading. They're not to be rejected if it is received. With gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Is fat sanctified by the word of God and prayer? Yep. Is bacon sanctified by the word of God and prayer? Yep. Is sugar sanctified by the word of God and prayer? Only if you eat it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Now, what a strange thing to say, right? (laughs) But it's true. If If you receive it with gratitude. And so, when somebody gives you a piece of cake, thank them and then eat it. Now, are you giving me a command about what I have to and what I can't eat, pastor? No, don't be an idiot. You don't have to eat it. I'm not going to make you eat it. But don't you dare talk about how you're being spiritual but not by not eating it. And then what do you do, kids? When you get food, it says you pray. It's sanctified. It's made holy. It's set apart to a good use, a godly use by prayer. And so we pray And we thank God. Now it says also sanctified by the word of God. What is that talking about? Does that mean that we have to read the Bible before we we eat? Well, no, not a bad idea. But no, that's not what it's talking about. The word of God is that he made it and it was very good. And then the word of God was not to call unclean what he has called declared clean. And so the Word of God declared it was good to eat. How strange that we would have to spend all this time talking about what you can and can't eat, what you should and shouldn't eat, what's good and bad for you, and on and on, and, on. and yet you look on Facebook, you look on Pinterest, you look on Instagram, and it's all about what you're eating. Right? Lots and lots and lots about what you're eating. Who cares what you're eating? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. 1 Corinthians 6.12. This is the Apostle Paul also, right? All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So if you can't eat sugar with gratitude, if you can't eat sugar without being mastered by it? All right. Then it's not profitable for you. Fine. Don't eat it. But none of that... Don't make that into some sort of spiritual thing that you're doing. Because we know what's going on there. The moment that you do that, what you're actually doing is just making yourself feel good about the place where you're obeying so that you don't have to think about the place where you're searing your conscience and your sin. The moment <clears throat> that religious people get sick of the pressure of the life of faith, they turn to legalism. Some indeed, yes, totally throw off any sort of morality, any sort of obedience, any sort of claim of the name of God, but most turn, certainly at the first, to simply a a kind of legalism, some one thing that they're going to make into the test of holiness for themselves and then for other people so that they can feel good about themselves. We are supposed to be thankful for the many good gifts that God has given us. Titus 1, again, Paul writing to another young pastor, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. You see how conscience comes into play in all of this stuff and thinking about what we do, and what is good, and what is righteous, and what is true. And so to the defiled, sugar defiles, fat defiles, pork defiles, everything they eat defiles because they cannot eat it in gratitude to God. Because they're living, searing their conscience against Him. Don't fall away from the faith. Which is to say, don't pay attention to deceitful spirits. And that requires you to be able to distinguish, discern between the spirits. It requires you to be able to notice as lies the things that they are claiming. And that, Is going to require you to stop desiring the things they promise that you'll get. You see, those sinful desires are what lead you to wanting to believe them in the first place and to being deceived. And that means you're going to have to keep your conscience unseared, which means confessing your sins. and trusting in Jesus Christ. Not in any good thing that you've done. And that's why what's at stake is the very gospel. When people begin to raise up these these man-made commands as the thing of godliness. They don't have to say, this will save you. They just have to make more of the commands of man than the commands of God. They just have to raise up those commands of God and you have to smell the fires of hell right there. Because you know that when the church is going along with the world and using all of the the arguments of the world with regard to some particular thing, whether that's understanding of uh, racial reconciliation or whether that's... You know what the desire is there, right? That you would look good in the eyes of the world. That faith and worldliness would, would be interchangeable, would go together, would be compatible with one another. and so the gospel is at stake with all of these things when we use the when we raise up the world's description of love and we raise up the world's command about what is required of us it will pervert the gospel it will lead us away from the faith So let us have our eyes and our ears opened and our hearts tuned to him. And we'll have nothing to fear. Let's pray.